What does it mean to be known better and more deeply than you know yourself? How does that make you feel? What does that compel you to do or be? For some, in some situations, that might feel scary, unsettling, maybe disturbing. For others, in different situations, that might feel comforting, reassuring. What does it mean to be known better and more deeply than you know yourself? That's what I found the psalmist to be encouraging us to consider in Psalm 139 today. Lord, you have searched me and known me. And it's a question that ties together all three of our texts today. What does it mean to be known better and more deeply than you know yourself? As many of you know, I am a big fan of Fred Rogers. And as I was sitting with these texts, one of his songs kept popping into my head. If you will look carefully, listen carefully. That's the way you learn a lot of things. Carefully look, 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 and listen. We live in a 21st century where our ears and eyes have been monetized. We are bombarded by messages and ideas all day long. And we are fools if we think we can handle this on our own. We are arrogant posers. If we think that on our own, we have the strength to somehow cut through the pressures, the expectations, the mores, the generally accepted way that things are, and somehow, on our own, be a prophetic voice. No. No. No, the world today is filled with prophetic voices. Voices that speak of real problems. Voices that call for change. Voices that challenge us, push us, affirm us. Voices that lie to us, manipulate us, lead us to ruin. These voices have an effect on us, whether we recognize it or not, whether we accept it or not. But if we look carefully, Listen carefully. We know that God is present in our world. God's voice speaks to us however hard it may be for us to hear. And our two stories today give us powerful examples of how to hear God's voice, of how to witness Christ in our world. Let's start with the one I find more challenging, problematic, heartbreaking. It's God calling to Samuel. It's a well-known story that I've heard told many times. Frankly, as Old Testament stories go, it's kind of church service, Sunday school catnip, isn't it? It's got the drama of a voice in the night calling a young boy. It's got an old man who doesn't hear the voice, but in the end knows what to do. And the kicker, the boy has a powerful, difficult message from God to share with the old man. Before I dug into this passage, I already felt uncomfortable with it. Not because of the story itself, but because I have experienced this story being used 
to bring prophetic words that felt exclusionary and hostile to whole groups of people. I have witnessed church leaders use this passage as a springboard for their own prophetic words that upon decades of reflection had little to do with the word of God and much more to do with their own insecurities, preferences, and desires. So let's get a better view and context for this story, shall we? And go back a little further to the beginning of Samuel. A couple chapters earlier, Hannah is unable to have a child. And verse 10 and 11 say, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And she is blessed with a baby boy who she names Samuel. And as soon as he is old enough, she takes him to the priest Eli. And then she prays a beautiful prayer that we don't have time to read the whole thing right now, but it feels very much akin to Mary's song. It's worth a sermon on unto itself. And she leaves her young son there to learn and grow with Eli. Who have been your Hannah's? Who are the people that have nurtured and selflessly given of themselves so that you could be here? So that you could be the wonderful, unique gift that you are? Who are your Hannah's? As we continue moving through 1 Samuel, we learn how Eli's son, who, sons, who are older and also priests, are pretty wicked, and not in a good way. They're doing some really despicable stuff, and God is having none of it. Eli calls his sons out and warns them, but it says, quote, His sons did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death, unquote. Oof-da. Meanwhile, Samuel kept working and learning from Eli, and every year his mother Hannah would make for him a little robe and bring it to him. And then we get to today's passage with God calling to Samuel in the night and this young boy running to Eli, thinking it must be the old priest calling him. And each time Samuel Samuel says, Here I am! It's a simple phrase that is uttered over and over in the Bible. Here I am by so many people. And it's an interesting juxtaposition to God, the great I am, that we humans reply, here I am. What does it mean to be known better and more deeply than you know yourself? Anyway, finally, after the third time of Samuel running to Eli, Eli realizes what's going on and tells Samuel to say, Speak, your servant is listening. So often, I've heard a lot of stuff made of Eli no longer having the vision, both literally and metaphorically, to see the will of the Lord. But let's 
try to avoid the ageist, ableist tendencies that often accompany this story. And just recall that it's Samuel, oh, it's, it's Eli, sorry, who finally sees what's going on. He recognizes that it's God's voice calling Samuel and suggests what he should do. Who are your Elis? Who are the people who are very human with their own challenges and foibles and wisdom who help you discern the voice of God? Because Samuel doesn't recognize God's voice. It's his teacher, his caretaker, his elder, who helps him hear what God has to share. Who are your Elis? What God has to share with Samuel is ruinous for Eli. Again, it starts almost seductive in its nature. See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. But what follows is brutal. The downfall of Samuel's lineage. We'll hear about how it comes to pass in the next chapter, and it ain't pretty. God's judgment against Eli and his lineage is heartbreaking. And ironically, it is a similar fate that awaits Samuel at the end of his career as a prophet with his sons who don't listen and look for God, but for their own pleasure and well-being. And here we get into my unease with this text. Because I can get behind a God who wants justice and lifts up the lowly, which at its best is what God is doing in rejecting the house of Eli and then later Samuel. But it is also hard not to feel like God is being pretty petty. And so I wanted to share a piece of exegesis that felt very different than all the others I read. It's from John Holbert, a fellow white bald guy with glasses and a professor of homiletics, but hopefully you don't hold that against him. He says, I cannot easily accept this rationale for a complete obliteration of a faithful priest and his household. Yes, his sons are little less than monsters and hardly worthy of priestly inheritance. But the fact is that Eli did attempt to restrain them. Why is Yahweh so enraged over Eli's ineffectual parenting, especially in the light of Yahweh's later rejection of the first king of Israel, Saul, over two technicalities of sacrifice, and Yahweh's ready acceptance of the second king, David, even after that king's shattering of four of the Ten Commandments in his filthy actions with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband? Yahweh appears quite arbitrary in these stories, and no more so than in the way Eli is treated here. He continues, Something important should be noted about this so-called call of Samuel. Yahweh does not ask him to do anything at all. Yahweh merely sputters the divine peak and apparently leaves it to Samuel to decide what to do with this anger. Samuel decides to tell Eli all, and then spends the remainder of his prophetic life shouting the unmitigated anger of Yahweh at nearly all whom he encounters. Samuel is the first prophet of doom in the Bible, and he plays the role to the hilt, a role he first learned from Yahweh at Shiloh. 
The Yahweh Samuel represents is too often arbitrary and vindictive, and it is regularly very difficult to determine when Yahweh is speaking to Samuel or when Samuel is speaking for himself alone. This is so precisely because as Samuel's life unfolds, he finds it increasingly difficult to separate what he wants and what he claims Yahweh wants. I can only conclude from the scene of Samuel's confrontation with Yahweh's voice in the night at Shiloh that hearing the voice of God is both exhilarating and very dangerous. Is it really the voice of God that one is hearing, or is it rather one's own voice urging one to act in ways that are as far from the way of God as can be imagined? My unease with how I had seen this story used by others turns out to be the very trouble with this story itself. Who are the Samuels in your life? Who shares with you hard things? Maybe at times those truths can feel petty or just their own feelings. Maybe at times, like Eli, you know you must accept the hard truth. What does it mean to be known better and more deeply than you know yourself? However we look at this story from Samuel, God knows each of the people in this story. Hannah, Eli, Samuel, even Eli's sons. And Hannah, Eli, and Samuel are clearly listening for God's voice. What did that voice sound like to each of them? What does that voice sound like to you? Who helps you discern that voice? Do you look carefully? Listen carefully. Moving on to our gospel story. Nathaniel seems like someone you might either really enjoy and get along with, or he might rub you the wrong way. He strikes me as a guy who says what he's thinking and calls things as he sees them. He's from Cana, another Galilean village not far from Nazareth. So, of course, when his pal Philip tells him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He's like, oh yeah? Yeah, he's Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. I imagine Nathaniel having just taken a big swig of a beverage and upon hearing Nazareth, he sprays it everywhere. What? Come on. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's kind of like a Packers fan saying, can anything good come from Soldier Field? Or a Wisconsinite say, can anything good come from Minnesota? <laughs> or a Western PA person like myself saying, can anything good come from West Virginia? <laughs> More seriously, it's wherever or whenever or however we might think God could not possibly be present. Can anything good come from the north side? Can anything good come from the burbs? Can anything good come from those high church folk? Can anything good come from those charismatic evangelicals? Can anything good come from those leftiest elitists? 
can anything good come from those Trumpists? Maybe it's the familiarity of a place and people known well that's so familiar, and yet obviously not exactly where you're from, but it makes it hard for Nathaniel to believe. To his credit, Philip doesn't try to sweet-talk Nathaniel. He just says, come and see. So Nathaniel goes with Philip, and as they're walking up to Jesus, Christ says to Nathaniel, here is a truly is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Clearly, he appreciated Nathaniel's straightforward attitude as well. And Nathaniel is obviously confused since he's never met Jesus before, and so he asks, where did you get to know me? And Jesus explains, well, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now here we have a moment not unlike what I was saying at the beginning, about our psalm today, about being known and how that can feel, Nathaniel could be creeped all the way out. I mean, what? Uh, I was by myself under the fig tree? How did you... What all did you see or hear? (laughs) But he isn't. He recognizes it for the miracle it is. It's an aha moment for Nathaniel when all of a sudden, in one moment, his world shifts and he exclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Unlike Philip, he doesn't mince words. He comes right out and says who Jesus is despite the political or societal ramifications that might accompany such an exclamation. Who are the Philips? who have met you where you are and invited you to come and see? Who are the Nathaniels who have witnessed what you have witnessed and said what you were incapable of saying? Nathaniel has an epiphany in this story. Several of the writers I read for today mentioned how so many of the scriptures during this season speak of epiphanies, and that maybe this season between Christmas and Lent should be the epiphany season, not just one Sunday. I suppose you could say that Samuel experiences an epiphany too, hearing the voice of God from, for the first time, or for that matter, Eli, even if it's a hard one to accept. But getting back to Philip's invitation to come and see, how have you experienced this invitation? How have you been invited to come and see. Because clearly you must have. Otherwise, why would you be here? Which leads me to the next question. How have you experienced this space, this time, this gift that is this church family? What keeps you coming back? What do you experience here that compels you to come and see here? For me, I know I need to be recalibrated, recentered. I need a church family to be in relationship with, to be accountable to, 
to be supported and challenged and accepted by. I need to surround myself with Hannah's and Eli's and Samuel's and Philip's and Nathaniel's because this isn't a journey one can take alone. Whether it's an invitation like Philip or a suggestion like Eli, we need to listen to each other. We need skeptics like Nathaniel who we don't have to convince of anything. We just need to invite them to join us in living into the mystery and the unknown. And who knows what epiphanies we'll have along the way. We need the loving support and care of Hannah. We need to be hospitable and space-making, like Philip, encouraging and sharing in ways that aren't manipulative or self-serving. Because we know we need Christ. We need to see Christ. We need to see Christ's love and peace in our violent, selfish world. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear and know God's love. And in looking for Christ, in looking for the great I am, we will experience things differently. We just have to look carefully. Listen carefully. And no matter what physical senses we have or do not have, whatever cognitive abilities we have or don't have, wherever we find ourselves and whatever frame of mind we're in, no matter who we are, together we will know our God more fully. And in doing so, gain a deeper understanding of ourselves because we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are known better and more deeply than we know ourselves. What does that lead you to do? What does that lead us to do? Whatever we do, we just have to look Carefully, listen carefully. That's the way you learn a lot of things. Carefully look, 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 and listen. Some things you see are confusing. Some things you hear are strange. But if you ask someone to explain one or two, you'll begin to notice a change in you. If you will look carefully, listen carefully, that's a way to keep on growing carefully. Look, 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 and listen.